Okay, if you want to open up your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. I trust you all bring Bibles to church, or is that out of fashion these days? If you have a phone, get a Bible app. For those of you who don't bring Bibles to church, it's on the screen. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, that if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we approach your word, we pray for a reverence and an awe. Uh, Lord, that we are coming not to just the words of another human being, but we're coming to the word of God Almighty, the word that can save, the word alone that is eternal, the word that transforms and shapes humans and has done since the dawn of time. Lord God, creating us a hunger for this word today. Lord, even though this passage is familiar, even though we've probably heard it a thousand times and maybe even heard and two score messages on this passage. We pray we come to it today with a freshness and a desire to learn again from your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that we are today not just in the presence of your word, but in the very manifest presence of God, that you promised to be among us. And you are here, whether we feel it or not. And Lord, we pray that we would reverence you as we come to your word today. Amen. Now last week we looked at Matthew 16, if you were here, and this is a continuation of that sermon because I didn't get time to run through everything that I wanted to share. So today again we're talking about Jesus Christ's church. We're asking the question, what does Jesus have to say about his church? And today we're going to see that the marks, according to Jesus, of the, of the church, the true marks of his church are his presence. Firstly, the church of Jesus Christ isn't just an assembly of men. It's not like a a tennis club or a gym or a golf club or a social club, but it's actually marked by the manifest presence of God. So the true church is a church that has the presence of God. Second mark is that Jesus' church, he says, will have order. There will be structure in the church of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, that there is authority given to the church of Christ. So we're looking at these three things today. What does it mean for Jesus' church to share in his presence? What does that mean for us to be sat right now in the manifest presence of God? How many of you even thought of that today when you walked into this place, that I'm actually in the manifest presence of God? 
We're in the presence of God today. Secondly, we're going to talk about order in the church. It's been a very popular thing to say that, you know, I love Jesus, I hate religion. How many of you remember that video that went viral about 10 years ago? Jesus v. Religion. Do you remember that? Great video. Fantastic. But we're going to talk today about order in the church. That actually order isn't something that Christ hates. It's something that he established in his church for the good and the benefit of his people. Thirdly, we're going to talk about, sorry, I've clicked on there. We're going to talk about authority. Authority in the church. What authority has Jesus actually given to you? What is it that we walk in? What's the power and authority that he has given us? Why are we talking about this? Why, do we, why does Pastor Graham keep harping on about the church? Well, I'm talking about the church today, and I've been talking about the church for four months now because this is the vital issue of the today. I don't know if you realize that or not. Maybe you don't think this is a big issue. Maybe you don't think this is a big battlefront. But let me tell you some statistics. Last week, we looked at a couple of statistics, didn't we? From the 2021 survey, from the census. And it said that 46% of people in the UK actually identify as Christian. That shocked me. I don't know about you, but I was very surprised at how high that number was. But another statistic was that only 5% of the UK population actually goes to church. So you've got 46% of roughly 60 million people saying, I'm a Christian. But actually only 5% of 60 million show up to church. What's going on there? Because the Muslim population in the UK has risen by a million in 10 years. You believe that? It's now just shy of 4 million. But guess what? Over 50% of Muslims show up to mosque every Friday. Some even more every week. To the point where soon, on a weekend, there'll be more mosque attenders than there are church attenders in what is supposedly a Christian nation. Now you tell me that church isn't the issue of today. Because Terry Johnson, Pastor Terry Johnson from Georgia, he said, most Americans, and I'm sure this is true of Brits too, most Americans treat church and church membership just like they treat a gym membership. I go because it's good for me. And I go when I can. But if I can't and I get busy, I'll work out at home. Or I'll just skip that week. They go to church because of how they see it as being good for them. There's that individualistic mindset. I go to church because I get something from it. And if I don't feel I'm getting something from it, then I won't go. Or I'll find something else to do. Or I'll do it at home. And we talked a bit about last week, about pajama church since covid And we all got used to online church, didn't we? And waking up in our PJs, doing church online or Zoom or whatever it was. And I've spoken to many pastors since 2020. And many of these pastors talked to me about how 20% of their congregation actually never came back after COVID. I don't know if you've seen that anecdotally, but the church in this nation has been ravaged. Ravaged. And the mindset of most Christians towards church is abysmal, dreadful. But we talk about revival. It makes me laugh. Christians talk about revival, but they can't show up to church on a Sunday. Not going to happen, guys. And I'm not here to give you legalism and tell you why you should and rap on at you about you've got you've to show up. I just simply want to tell you what Jesus said about the church. I just want to tell you what Scripture says about the church. Try to get you excited about it again. Try and get myself excited about it again. Is that okay? This is going to be good news. If we want to see the UK touched 
with a powerful move of God, this is the fight that we have to fight. This is the decision we've got to change. It's the thinking pattern that's gone wrong in much of UK Christianity, and it it needs to change if we're going to honor Christ in these days. Because if church is just like any other organization, if church is just like the gym, being a church member is just like being a member of your local tennis club, then there's nothing wrong with treating it that way, is there? If it's just like being a season ticket holder at the Wolves, then it doesn't matter. Or Newcastle United, David. I saw you smile then. If it's just the same as that, then it doesn't matter. There's no difference between the two. And therefore, you should just treat church as any other organization. Because there are many organizations, there are many institutions that will do you good to be a part of them. How many of you know it's actually good to work out? It's good to maintain physical fitness. It's not bad. It's not of the devil. It's God's will that you should steward and look after your body. So it's great to be a member of a gym or a tennis club or whatever you might be. But is there any difference qualitatively between that and being a member of the church? Well, verse 20 tells us something. Verse 20 in the previous passage tells us something. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. It's a verse that we often use, isn't it, to encourage one another because maybe we showed up to a prayer meeting and there's just two of us there. Maybe we went on outreach. How many have ever been on outreach before and every, everybody suddenly gets a cough or a cold and you show up on the streets and there's just two of you there. We say, listen, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. We use it to encourage one another. And that's true. Wherever two or three Christians are gathered, Jesus makes this crazy promise. He says, I am there. He doesn't say I will be there. He says, I am. It's a promise that Christ will be with you wherever two or three are gathered in his name. But one thing we actually miss very often is that this verse, verse 20, about Jesus promising his presence to where two or three are gathered, The context is actually the church. The context is the church. We often use it, and rightly so, to talk about where two of us meet up in a cafe. Well, Jesus is here, and that's true. Or we talk about it maybe when we've gone out on the streets to to evangelize. We say where two or three are gathered, there he is, and that's true. But the context isn't outreach. Did you notice? The context isn't outreach. The context isn't meeting socially in a coffee shop. The context of that passage is actually the church. So Jesus is actually specifically promising his presence to be upon us in a church setting where just two or three are gathered. He doesn't say, listen, I'll be there when 100 show up. I'll be there when 50 show up. He says, I'll be there when two or three, the smallest number even. When they gather, there I am in the midst. He's promised to be present with us. So this idea of the presence of God, what is it all about? Because we know, firstly, God is present everywhere, isn't he? God's present everywhere. Psalm 139 says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? There's there's nowhere you can go where God isn't. There's no place that's too dark for God's presence to be. There's no hellhole deep enough 
that escapes from God's presence. Not even hell is devoid of God's awful, powerful presence. Did you know that? People talk about hell as if it's Satan's kingdom and Satan's advancing. I'm like, no, that's his prison. That's where he ends up. That's where he gets tortured. It's not yin-yang, 50-50. The presence of God in hell will be awful, just as the presence of God in heaven will be wonderful. There's no place you can go to escape his presence. So firstly, God is present where? Everywhere God is present. But there's more. There's more. God promises specifically in Scripture to be present where one person calls out on his name. Wherever one person calls on his name, God says, I'll be near you. I'll be near you. So if you're calling on the name of the Lord alone in your bedroom at night, when no one else is up, no one else is awake, God himself says, I will be there with you. When everyone else has forgotten about you, when no one else can be bothered to message you and check in, God says, listen, I'll show up. I'll be, isn't that amazing? Sometimes I put so much hope and trust in the attention of other people. Do you? Sometimes I do. Maybe it's just me. But I can get really despondent and upset when I feel left out or I feel forgotten. Any of you? I feel like I feel forgotten. I feel on the outside of this. Loneliness, in fact, in the UK is one of the worst problems that we're facing. Loneliness, people feeling cut adrift from community. People feeling like they've been left behind. But God says, wherever anyone calls on my name, I will be near them. God never forgets anybody, even if the whole world forgets about them. Even if the whole world's not bothered to remember them, to remember their struggles, to remember their plight, God remembers them. Psalm 145, the Lord, Yahweh, is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. No matter who you are, no matter your background, no matter your importance, the Lord is near to all who call on him. So he's near to all who call on him. But God has promised a special presence to his people. There's a picture there, of course, of the people, Israel, in the wilderness in front of Mount Sinai. And what can you see there above the tabernacle? The pillar of fire at night. It was the pillar of cloud and fire that led the church. And that's the word that's used in the book of Hebrews. Did you know that? that there was a church in the Old Testament. There was a church in the Old Testament and that church was led through the wilderness by the presence of God, by the Shekinah glory of God that appeared how? In a pillar of fire and cloud. Was God present with his church in the Old Testament? Yes, he was. Will God be absent from his church in the New Testament? No, he won't. He has promised to be present with us. Just the same as he was present there in that visible pillar of fire. Now, because of the Holy Spirit filling us, because of Pentecost, because of the Spirit being poured out into the lives of every believer, there is that same Shekinah presence of God. Not just when you're on your own doing any devotional time, but more so, more so in the church, more so in the public gathering. 
You see, people these days in the UK, I think this is the big problem. We build our spiritual lives around our personal worship time. We build our whole Christianity around our quiet time. Not around this. That's where we've gone wrong. I'm going to say it. That's where we've gone wrong. There is a promise of God to be with you on your own in your quiet time. Don't get me wrong. He's promised to be near to all who call on his name. But there is a special, specific promise of God to be powerfully present with his glory, with his glory where his people gather together. So how is the presence of God manifest? We'll get into that in a moment. This is a quote I love from one of the church fathers. Don't get stuck up over the word Catholic. I'll explain that in a moment. But Ignatius of Antioch said, wherever Jesus Christ is, the Catholic church is there. Do you know what Catholic means? Universal. Universal. It doesn't mean Roman Catholic. It means the universal. So wherever Jesus is, that's where the church is. Jesus is in his church powerfully today. And sometimes I think it's hard to believe that promise, isn't it? Because I think these days we are largely driven by feelings. We're a feelings-driven culture. And I believe you can feel the presence of God. How many of you felt his presence before? In a powerful way. I have. But how many of you understand that just because you don't get a shiver or a manifestation, that doesn't mean the presence of God's not there? There's many times I don't feel anything. Does that change the word of God? Do my feelings dictate the truth of God's word? Graham Phillips did not determine the presence of God in today's meeting, therefore God was not present. That's a fallacious argument. That's a lie from the pit of hell. I want you to say to your feelings sometimes, you liar. When you don't feel the presence of God, who's God, your feelings or the word of God? He's here right now. I think sometimes we get stuck up over our feelings. We get hung up on them. We look in this room. We see the paint peeling off the walls. We look around and we see, man, I, I, I just feel like I'm in a normal room. I could be anywhere. I don't feel like there's anything uniquely special about today's gathering. But Jesus Christ says, I'm here. He's here right now. Put your hands out in front of you. Let's pray. Lord, forgive me that I have come into this place just like Moses came before the burning bush. Forgive me that I've come and I haven't bothered to acknowledge your presence, Lord. And today I now take the choice to take my sandals off before your presence, to acknowledge that you're here. To say that you're with me, you're with your church right now. I acknowledge you, Jesus. I thank you for your presence with me, that it is just the same presence as was with your church in the wilderness. It is just the same spirit that was with your church on the day of Pentecost. You are here today, and I am not going to wait until I get a feeling to acknowledge it. I'm going to acknowledge it by faith right now. Because I don't believe first and foremost in my emotions, but I believe first and foremost in your word. Amen. There's a Hebrew word, shakan, which means to dwell, to sit, to dwell. That's where we get the shekinah presence from. It means God's dwelling presence. 
It was God's dwelling presence, wasn't it? That came upon the people in Israel and came upon the temple when they offered up sacrifices. And that same Shekinah presence of God is here in his church today. So how is that happening? Firstly, because each Christian is not just simply a person who has believed certain facts. I think sometimes we boil down Christianity to a decision. Don't get me wrong, we're going to go out on the streets this week and we're going to help people to come to a decision, hopefully, about Jesus and hopefully a positive one. But how many of you understand being a Christian isn't just making a decision? I have a problem with people that say, we got 250 decisions for Christ. Great. Doesn't mean they're saved. Doesn't mean they're saved. You can tick a box on a card and still go to hell. You can put your hand up in a meeting and still follow Satan in your life. Being a Christian is about being born again. Being a Christian is about something more than making a decision. We've reduced it to something that it was never meant to be. Being a Christian is being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Being born again, having the power. Am I preaching? Am I making sense? I feel like I'm getting nothing. Is this true or is it? Say amen. If it's true, say amen. Wake up, come on. A Christian is somebody who's filled with the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Secondly, Christ is present in his church through the preaching of his word. He's present through the preaching of his word. Not the words of a pastor, not the words of an entrepreneur, not the words of a businessman, but through the preaching of his word. Amen? Where we hear his word preached, he is what? He's present. Jesus actually threatens to remove his presence from several churches in the book of Revelation. Did you know that? Why did he threaten them? He threatened them because they departed from his word. It's a very, very serious offense for a pastor to stand up behind a pulpit and begin to preach his own opinions or simply to ignore the word of God altogether or to play on people's feelings. How many of you understand that this is the cancer in the visible church today is pastors who play your feelings like a keyboard. They know how to manipulate you, to minister to felt needs. But they're not preaching the gospel. They're not preaching Jesus Christ. They're preaching how to live a better life, how to have your best life now, how to have more riches, how to have the things that Satan offered Jesus in temptation. That's a gospel of the devil. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you hearing me? So many Christians will sit and contentedly listen to a gospel of the Antichrist and forget that the gospel of Jesus Christ was never about material gain. It was about saving lost people, reviving them, giving them a new life, giving them a new heart, filling them with the Holy Spirit, uniting them with their Father in heaven, giving them peace with God. That's what the gospel's about. It's about Jesus. Jesus Christ and his works. So he's promised to be wherever his word is preached. Wherever his word is not preached or it's ignored or derided, guess what? He's not there. That's not a true church. There are many churches that are actually not churches. They're social clubs. 
They're cults. They're not true churches because his word must be preached. Thirdly, he's present in the administration of the sacraments. Another thing that we as Protestants get very embarrassed about, I think, on a regular basis, because we see how the Roman church has taken these and has messed with them a little bit. But we should not be ashamed of the Lord's Supper, brothers and sisters. We should be able to say that God has made Christ present by faith in the Lord's Supper. We know the bread doesn't become his flesh. We know he's not literally in the bread and in the wine, but by faith he is. When we partake of that sacrament there, by faith Christ is with us. By faith he, he, he actually does build us up through the taking of the Lord's Supper. And I think sometimes we've made it something so base, <laughs> so low, because we're ashamed of maybe the errors of some of the Roman church have made. But he's present wherever his sacraments are administered. Secondly, Jesus Christ says that his church actually has order. It has order. How does it have order? Well, I think often, I read a book actually about a year ago. It's got to be more than actually. Time seems to have flown since COVID. I don't know about you, but when I think of 2020, I'm like, wasn't that about three months ago? And it's three years ago. Um, but I read a book um, a while back, many years ago actually, <laughs> Uh, that was about church and it was basically a book saying what we need to do is get rid of all this hierarchy now I know what they mean and you know what they mean don't they when they say that because I think sometimes the offices in the church of, of pastor and what have you they've become a bit too elevated and the pastor has too much control and they lead it like a business and things go badly wrong when that happens don't they but I think we can sometimes swing the other way, can't we? Throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, what we need to do is just get rid. Get rid of all that. We don't need pastors. We just need to get together and we just need to be together. And that's what church is. Well, actually, Jesus says church is more than just a gathering. It's more than just a community. Because in this passage of scripture, he says, listen, if, if your brother sins against you, take it to him first. And you should do that. If your brother or sister sins against you, that's what Jesus says. We take it to them. Don't forget about it. Don't stuff it down. If you've been hurt, go speak to them. Go speak to them first. Then he says, if they don't listen, take someone else, two or three, and speak to them again with a few more witnesses. But if they still don't listen, he says, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. You tell something to an organization, don't you? You tell something to a body, to an institution. So the church is, yes, we talked about this before. The church is the body of Christ. It's an organism. Do you remember we talked about that? The church is an organism. It's living. But the church is also an organization. It is also an institution, whether we like it or not. People like to say things that, I used to say this as well. You know, I love Jesus, I hate religion. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And there's a, tr there's a truth to that. But is Christianity a religion? So, yeah, it is. It is a religion. It is a religion. But it's a religion based on a relationship. So Christianity has an order to it. The church has an order to it. And how does that show up? Well, we read in Titus... Paul's gone round Crete. He's preaching the gospel. Many people are coming to Christ. There's something of a revival going on in Crete. 
But he writes to this young man, Titus, and he says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so we see how important it is to Paul that elders, these offices, be filled, that the church have overseers. And without that, something's missing. The offices of the church are mentioned several times in the New Testament. And occasionally different words are used, and we can get mixed up. But essentially, the three words used to describe the the same office in Greek are presbyteros, episkopos, and poimen. That means elder, presbyteros. That's where we get presbyter from. Episkopos means overseer, literally. And that's where we've got the word bishop from, episkopos, or poimen, which means pastor or shepherd, actually. It means shepherd. But all those words describe the same role of overseer. Now, churches might decide to do governance in the way they do it. You've got Anglicanism, where you have a bishop, you have an overseer of other shepherds, whereas you've got the Presbyterian church, you've got a presbytery. You've got presbyters who meet together, who decide and make decisions, okay? They're all the same office, according to Scripture. And then you've got deacons, diakonos, that's servants, and that's the level below. So these are people that are not charged with teaching and preaching, Um, in the gathered body but they're there to serve to minister to help to aid and what's the job of those people who are in those offices well here's what Acts 20 28 says pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God did you see that what's the job of a pastor to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood so a pastor A presbyter, an overseer, a bishop is there to care, to shepherd the church of God. I'm going to quote from George Whitfield. This is an absolute banger. This is so, so key and on point for today. George Whitfield said, As God can send a nation or a people no greater blessing than to give them faithful, sincere and upright ministers, so the greatest curse that God can possibly send upon a people in this world is to give them over to blind, unregenerate, carnal, lukewarm and unskilled guides. Old Squintum had a way with words. I think also in this passage, before we move on to authority in the last couple of minutes, this passage is all about a context where somebody has sinned against someone else and it's within the church, isn't it? Jesus says, if your brother. So this isn't someone outside the church. This is someone in the church. And Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. Now, I think there's something really powerful for us here today to get and to catch hold of. Just because we're in the church, just because we're saved, doesn't mean that there won't be messes to clear up. Right? Isn't that right? There'll still be mess to clear up. There'll still be sins, even in a church, that have to be confessed. And there'll be relationships that experience strain. And Jesus says, he implies to expect that. Not for it to be common, but that it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Because we can be very, very, we can have a kind of airy fairer view of church, can't we? Where nothing bad should ever happen. And that's true, but it does. People do mess up. People do sin. People do get hurt. And Jesus is saying, we've got to deal with that. So if you're hurt, 
and it's somebody else in the church, what does Jesus say? Don't bury it. Go and speak to them. Go and speak to them in love. Bring that issue to them with honor. Treating them as a fellow servant of Christ, but being honest, keeping short accounts. And only if that person fails to listen to you and then another group of Christians do you take it to the eldership. That's the next port of call. I want to move on quickly now to authority because the church not only has been given order and offices, it's also been given authority. Firstly, in this thing of binding and loosing. Now, in this context, it's mentioned twice in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. But here in Matthew 18, it has to do with church discipline. That's the immediate context. Is a brother sinning against a brother? And then that needing to get dealt with. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, whatever decision you make in the church about this brother who has sinned, that heaven agrees with it. Those terms, binding and loosing, they're Jewish terms. Basically, to bind means to condemn. Means to condemn. And then to loose means to approve. You know, there's that passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, deliver this man for the destruction of his flesh. Deliver, deliver him to Satan. I always used to be like, what does that mean? Well, it's effectively casting him out of the church. It's disfellowshipping him for his sin. That's to hand him over to Satan. So the church is given this authority, firstly, of making decisions. And Jesus says, whatever you bind will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will have been loose in heaven. So there's a supreme authority given to the church to make decisions in church discipline, firstly. Secondly, in Matthew 16, we're given the keys to the kingdom. We're given the keys to the kingdom. What is that meaning? Well, the church has been given keys. Keys in scripture always speak of access. It's a picture of access. It's the authority to permit or deny entrance to somebody. The church has been given the keys of the kingdom, which is what? The gospel. The gospel is the key, isn't it? John 3, 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. It's that severe. To reject the gospel is to reject life. It's to say, I don't want to enter into the kingdom. So the keys to the kingdom we've been given is the gospel. And the gospel is the most urgent message you will ever share with somebody. It is a matter of life or death. And when we think of that, this is something that always drives me. Do I really believe that? Do I really believe that I carry with me the keys to the kingdom? I think often we forget that, don't we? I do. But the gospel is a message of life or death. It's a message of life or death. It's to give somebody the opportunity to live with Christ forever or to reject him. So we've been given the keys to the kingdom. We've also been given the promise of answered prayer. Matthew 18, 19 says, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them. Incredible promise. You've been given communion with God. You've been given an audience with the Almighty to petition him, to ask him about whatever you want. Whatever's in your heart, you can bring to him. You know, I, I sometimes wish I would have that light every morning about prayer, about the place of prayer, about the authority of prayer, 
that I can any time I want go and sit in the presence of God and he'll listen to me. He's promised to. He's promised to hear us, especially when we pray together. I long again for a church that really believes, and me too, believes in that promise of answered prayer. And finally, we've been given authority, not just in the place of prayer, but also over the powers of darkness. Over the powers of darkness. Spiritual forces are at play even now. In our lives. There is warfare happening. Whether we'd acknowledge it or not, there is a battle going on for your life. As Paul says, we wage war. We're in a battle. A soldier who's on the battlefield who pretends the enemy's not really there is a soldier who's going to be dead pretty quickly. Many Christians don't have a grid for spiritual warfare. They don't believe there's a battle raging and therefore they are vulnerable. We've got to arm ourselves. We have to be ready. But listen, it's not a fight in vain. I think we can swing the other way and we can make spiritual warfare into this thing where we are constantly embattled and we don't have the weapons we need. We don't have the power we need. But let me read to you from Luke 19. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power, say all the power, all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We've been given authority even over the powers of darkness. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm just going to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon, then Bex is going to share something. Spurgeon says, If Jesus is there, if he is present, then the blessing is not what he gives, but he himself is the blessing. It is not what he does. It is himself. It's not even what he says. It's himself. Oh, blessed be his name for what he gives. And blessed be his name for what he does. And blessed be his name for what he says. But still more blessed be his name because he himself loved us and gave himself for us. And now comes himself into the midst of his people. Could you just put on, if one of your earlier slides, I can't remember which number. Basically, when we were praying over the church earlier, I had two pictures and the Holy Spirit is so faithful and the Holy Spirit is, is at work in many different ways. And the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit will give us pictures and dreams and so when we were praying I had two pictures but I just didn't know whether to share them but it seems fitting now that I've heard what Graham has said because he doesn't tell me what he's going to speak about um, <laughs> so it's a surprise to me as well but um, I had two pictures and one of them um, was the picture of the, the pillar of fire um, with the Israelites camped out amongst it and the other picture I had was of a swan with a crown on its head um, and I just felt like to share these and it's for you to weigh up and to pray into but I felt like we could see these two things in two different ways one personally and one as Hope City Church or the wider church um, 
I just felt like as we're moving into a new building, um, that it's really important for all of us to, to cover that in prayer and to cover that and ask God to protect us as a church in that as we make that move. There is another church in the building already. Um, but I think just as we go ahead, I think that would be brilliant if we could pray as a church for his protection surrounding this move and that our prayer should be, you know, if you move, Lord, we will move with you. But if you stay we will stay where you're camped. And we believe that God has opened this path for us to move forward. But carrying on, yeah, I just felt that thing of like, God, if you move, we will move. If you stay, we will stay. Not just in this move, but as a church. So I just encourage you in that. Um, and in your personal walk as well, just that, that, that God is with you and that he, his presence is with you, like Graham was saying, even when we don't feel it, the Bible tells us he is there. You know, if you have welcomed Jesus into your life, if you have asked him to fill you and, and be a vessel for him, then he truly is with you wherever you may go, as high as the heavens, as deep as the sea, he's with you. And then I had the picture of the swan. And the swans, I don't know the exact rules about it but swans for hundreds and hundreds of years have been protected by the queen there have a special protection uh, belonging to to the royal family and obviously now that passes over to the king and so it just made me think when Graham was talking about how he's with you he is present with all who call upon him and he's promised that his presence will be with the church and just like those swans, I felt like perhaps those swans could be us as the church and personally, that we're protected by the king, um, that he has a special ownership over our lives, that he is watching out for each one of you and that he is with you and that he sees you. And no matter what you're going through, no matter how you feel, each one of us come today feeling any number of things, but no matter where you are or how you're feeling, he, when you've asked him into your life, he places a royal crown on your head. And day by day, the Holy Spirit sanctifies you, but he sees you and he knows you. And I just really wanted to share that as we go into a final worship song. <laughs>